I want to answer the question that probably many of you are thinking right now. We can barely stand his announcements. How in the world are we going to stand his sermon for the next 75 minutes? Well, I'll give you a few options, okay? The first one is this. Uh, you can go ahead and start counting the apples on the tree up here. Uh, the closest guesser, I've already had two guesses come in, both little kids. Uh, the closest guesser to how many apples there are on the tree, you will receive a box of broken nativity cookies that were given in. Um, they're probably going to be stale. The second option for you is to start, uh, pull out your phone and you can uh, begin browsing fellowshipsj.life. It is approved this morning. You're allowed to do that. You can either tell them you are signing up for the new email or uh, the nativity. That's acceptable as well. The third is what I like to call the 11 o'clock special. I haven't gotten to say this yet, but this is your game, okay? I see you people. I see you people. This is how we, because I come here too at 11 o'clock, um, you wander out, you take a nice long bathroom break, okay? And then you wander over to the coffee nook, okay? And then you enjoy some coffee. And maybe you engage in meaningful conversation, maybe not. Um, and if you run out of things to say at the coffee nook and you're looking to waste time and avoid the sermon, just start talking about whether it's a dark or a light roast. That's a really easy way to get in there. Uh, ben Parker will tell you that a dark roast actually has less caffeine than a light roast. Did you know that? Starbucks has been lying to you, okay? Everyone's like, dark, it's better. It's not, okay. Uh, all right. Today we're talking about deep sin, the depth of our sin, and the depth of God's grace want to pray together as we jump into Romans chapter 7 this morning. Oh God, gracious, majestic in wonder, your glory knows no other. We thank you, God, that you are um, so presently aware of the depth of our sin and yet so readily making available your grace to us. Lord, we desire that you would speak to us this morning. Soften our hearts now, right now, God. We know you're here. We want to hear from you. We want to be changed by you. We don't want to walk in our own ways over and over again with the same result. We want you to change us. So we ask that in your name. Amen. Well, if you have uh, been gone for the last 15 weeks, we've been in the book of Romans, and we are continuing this morning in the book of Romans uh, and for those that are just jumping in, I want to give a quick Romans overview. Paul is writing to multiple audiences, right? He's writing to multiple cultures, uh, a number of different systems of thought and offering different levels of spiritual heritage, the people that are reading his letters. He's writing to Jews, people that were God's chosen people. And through years and years and years, God has cared for them and carried them and directed them. He's also writing to those outside that Jewish heritage called the Gentiles, people that didn't have God's chosen nation uh, stamped on their name. And so there was this dilemma. How does one get a righteous declared stamp on their name? Is, is it by obeying the law as the Jewish people would do? Do you have to obey all those commands? Or, or is it through grace, which is what the Gentiles preached because they didn't really even know God's law. And so they were told about grace. And so there's this dichotomy here. Is it law, Paul, or is it grace, what you've been teaching? And let's talk through here 
uh, how this is, this is the case here. In Romans chapter 2, Paul begins and he levels the playing field and he's saying, first and foremost, I'm writing not just to one type of person. I'm writing to all people. There is no difference, uh, slave nor free, Greek or Hebrew, Jew or Gentile. No favoritism. In Romans chapter 3, nobody is righteous, not even one person. Romans 3.23, for all totality have sinned and are in need of God's rescue. Later on in chapter 3, it actually says that we can't obey enough to be acceptable in God's sight. You might try to go that way and obey the law as much as possible, but God will not be satisfied with that. Romans chapter 4, verse 5, there's some good news. It says, for those that believe in the name of Jesus Christ and what he has given, we then get to receive the righteousness of Christ as our record. Instead of what would be guilty otherwise, we're given the righteous performance record of Christ. Romans 6, 23 talks about the reason for that is because of his death and that satisfied God's wrath meant to be poured out on us and all of our sin and brokenness, but he poured it out on his own son, Jesus Christ. And last week in Romans chapter 7, we read in the very first part there that if we receive Christ, we are then released from the law and we serve a new master, his spirit at work in us. God is working to make us like himself. And I was reading this morning in a um, a New Morning Mercies by Paul Tripp, a little devotional, and it said, did you know that your God is a dissatisfied God? He doesn't like you as you are. He loves you beyond all things, but he wants to make you more and more like himself, and he's not satisfied with just a little bit less of sin and a little bit more of himself. He wants you to be totally conformed to his image this whole idea of God at work in sanctification. I want to read a quote by John Piper who talks about what sanctification really means. He says it this way, The whole lifelong, triumphant offensive called Operation Sanctification, by which we wage war against all the remaining corruption in our lives, is sustained by the supply line of the Spirit that comes from the secure unassailable home base of justification. That is Christ's record in our place. And it will be a successful operation, but only because of the unassailable home base. It's the foundation. It's the basis for which the rest of Romans would be written upon, that his record is now my record, and my guilt was poured out on him on the cross. Last week, the example of a husband and, and wife was used of uh, talking about our relationship between the law and sin. And if one person dies in the marriage, they are then released from the ties that bind them and they are free to go and marry. The law would allow that. In the very same way, as believers in Jesus Christ, we died to the law and sin is no longer our master so I want to jump in with Romans chapter 7 today. If you're following along in one of the Bibles in your pew, it's page 799. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7. It says this, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. 
Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. This morning, I want to make just three observations from this text as we read in Romans chapter 7. The first one is not new. We actually talked about it last week, um, but I will make this disclaimer. Pastor Mark, last week, if you noticed, he was supposed to talk up to verse 7, and he dipped into my section, uh, which stole some material. So we're going to review. But actually, Paul repeats the very same thing at the end of that first part. He repeats it again, which might mean two things. Number one, the people that he was writing to probably needed to hear it because it was that important. Or number two, this was the thing they kept getting wrong. And so Paul was like, this is it again, okay? And here's the point. The law exposes my sin and shows my daily need of grace. Verse seven, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Well, certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. The law then is the, the guilty party. Is, is, I'm sorry, the law then is not the guilty party. It's holy and perfect, as it says later in the chapter. It, it rather exposes sin as the guilty party. I want to illustrate this by a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He put it this way. By the way, is he not the coolest dresser on the planet? I mean, like, if he dresses like that, his theology has to be good. The law is like an x-ray. It cannot cure cancer, but it can point cancer out when we otherwise would not have been aware of its existence and its ominous threat to life. The law points out sin so that God's grace and mercy can provide the righteousness we lack in another way through Jesus Christ by faith and apart from any human merit. To those who have experienced God's surgery, which has removed the cancer of sin and prevented death, the x-ray of the law is a wonderful and gracious gift. The law is not sin, but a sign, pointing to sin and warning us of its deadly consequences. Now, I've often been accused of normally staying in the deep land of theology and deep thinking is where I normally land. And if you're from a youth group perspective, you know that's not always true. So I'd, I'd like to make a youth group example of Charles Spurgeon's deep quote this morning about the law and sin. Have you guys ever played the game of sardines before? It's that old game where uh, one person hides and then everybody goes to hide with him. Now, I did search Google for sardines. Came up with the one on the right. We know those are actually sardines. I have no idea what the thing on the left is. I think they're playing, but I've never played the game of sardines with a stick in my hand like that gentleman on the left. <laughs> when you find them, you just hit them. Okay. Um, so if the game of sardines were our example, here's what it would be like. If sin was the one person hiding quietly in the dark representing sin, the law 
would be that squirrely junior high kid named Tommy who just cannot keep his mouth shut. He'd be exposing the, the hiding spot every time. Hey, I think he's over here. Let's go hide with him. And you're like, Tommy, come on. It's not how you play sardines. The law is the same way. It looks at your life and says, oh, sin right over here. Uh, yep, you missed it here. And it points out and exposes our sin and shows us our daily need of grace. But here's the deal. Getting caught in our sin and having the doors of our personal darkness swung open, secret motives exposed, not really a happy process. People just aren't lining up for this kind of experience, at least not outside of my door. But when we understand and know our sin and begin to realize that God is gracious and there's this invitation for us as broken people to come and to drink the antidote for shame and guilt and sin and lawlessness. It's his grace. And that humbles us. We can come then and say, God, we are at your feet. Help. We find our way back to him. But I think the, the application of daily needing God's grace is something that, first, I want to make really personal for me. And so I'm going to talk through a few applications that I have, maybe the roles that I live in, that apply to me. The first one is I'm a parent. And so if I am a parent and I refuse to acknowledge my own brokenness and sin, I'm not going to be a good parent. I'm not going to be a good husband. I'll even say this. I'd be selling my kids a brand of Christianity that will go out of style when they can't measure up. Moms and dads, we, we need to show our kids our brokenness. We need to not only show our brokenness, but when we fail and sin against one another, we need to guide them with us and walk to the grace and mercy of God and allow them to see that process. And one day, they will do very the same thing. As a, as a pastor, maybe for you as a, a ministry leader, as someone who's involved in, in these types of things, pastors are ministry leaders who teach God's truth only for others and not for themselves will do damage in the church. Jesus is pretty straightforward with this in Matthew chapter 7 in his, uh, the, the Sermon on the Mountain. He's teaching here and he says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I've never heard of an eye doctor with poor eyesight performing surgery on someone that needs eye surgery, right? Like that's not how it happens. That person has to be so dialed in and seeing clearly of themselves first before they're able to perform that on someone else. So the last category is someone that I'm really passionate about. It's students and youth. I don't want to leave you out because I know a lot of you would have been in a class right now, but because of the nativity, uh, there is no classes for you. So we want to talk to you as well. You're not left out of this example of how you would apply the law to your life. Start a conversation with mom and dad this afternoon. Here's how it's going to go. Hey, dad. When is the last time you really messed up? And just stop right there. Let your dad talk. Hey, mom, when's the last time you just absolutely blew it? Like, just 
the worst mistake you could have done? What, what was that like for you? What was that like? See what happens. And then, on the flip side, you begin to be honest about your own brokenness and sin. Because the truth is, as your parents are sharing, that's going to invite your heart to then begin to share as well. And you'll realize that if we are all broken people in need of God's grace, we're running together. Had this vision of um, maybe starting like a, a secret church handshake. Uh, it didn't really go well the first couple services, but this is kind of what it'll look like, like a high five type thing. You see, they're happy people, but what if our high five at the church meant something a little different than, hey, what's up? Good to see you today. Or how's it going, you know? What if it instead meant this? You know, high five, how you doing? Hey, you're desperate today for God's grace. <laughs> high five, you're a dirty, rotten sinner and you need God more today. What if that was the high five and every time we walked in this building, we were reminded, we, we need God's grace again today. And so that high five reminds us that I actually haven't graduated from God's Grace Institute. I'm not a, a, a person that has arrived. Instead, every time I walk in, I'm reminded that I need the Lord and so do you. We don't attend church because we're perfect. It's not a really like earth-shattering thing, but some of you are struggling with that. And so we're going to take care of that right now, okay? I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, hey, you are not perfect. Okay, go ahead and say that. All right. You can tell this is like a, the people having the most fun in the room right now, husbands and wives. Oh, you're not perfect. There's a few I saw that actually looked at each other as husband and wife and then turned the other way and they were like, you're not perfect. They just avoided the fight altogether, right? We attend church because sanctification, God making us new, is a lifelong, God-ordained, others-involved, community effort project. We face our mess as God's spirit brings that out in us and exposes our sin. I want to break open a little discussion now that uh, is something that has been kind of comes up here and there. We have one of the most amazing resources that's available to us at our church, and uh, I was a, a beneficiary of that a few years ago. I was in the hospital I uh, had a parasite that I got on one of our missions trips. Highly recommend it. And I was sitting in the hospital bed, and our church has got this live stream, and it's so wonderful. It was so life-giving for me to be able to sit there and to watch and to receive and to be part of church. And it was a gift in that moment. But you know what? Outside of the unavoidable times, I think if we make online church our church, we're missing out on the community effort project available to us here. Online church is not meant to replace this. I think there are many of us, maybe for convenience sake, that would just choose to watch at home online as you're folding laundry as whatever the case might be. And I don't want to shame anyone that does that or watches church online. I get there are extreme circumstances or whatever, but it's not a replacement. It is not a replacement for someone looking you in the eyes and saying, I love you. You need God's grace more today. Let's do this thing. I'll ask this question. 
What lessons are you silently teaching your kids by watching church at home? What's become more important to you than the gathering weekly with others who are in need of God's redemptive work yet again? I would rather have this sanctuary filled with screaming babies and children running wild because it says that as parents that would probably find it easier to sit at home and have the kids occupied, it says, we're not perfect, we need this, and we're just gutting this out as parents. In fact, the very opposite would be so sad to me that you would feel that you couldn't come with a screaming child or with a baby that's in need of this or that and that you would have to gut it out at home alone. That would be when you're all put together, when your family is ordered or can be quiet or can whatever show up to church. Do not let Church Online replace the weekly pilgrimage as part of the community of hope in Christ. But here's what will happen, though. If you start coming to church, your son or your daughter might begin to ask you, Mom, Mom, why are we going to church more now? Like, can't we just do the online thing? And, and here's a really acceptable response. Because your dad is a dirty, rotten sinner. That's why we're going to church. <laughs> and so am I. But, you know, start there. Do you see the law exposes my sin and shows my daily need of grace? The second point is this. My sin is a deep, dark pit of rebellion, and I need the light of Christ in order to see the bottom as Christians, we live with this tension of the, the spirit at work inside of us, giving us new desires and cravings for things that will produce life. And yet, we're not completely remade. There's this flesh, there's this sin nature inside of us pulling us in the other direction. It's no longer our master sin, but it's not completely gone yet. And we have the spirit directing us, but we are not totally transformed into this new body yet. I think it's huge for us as the church and for Christians what, what this would look like if we understood that there's actually a war happening inside of us. The Christian life, if we don't know this, would be pretty confusing, right? I've had students that have gotten saved at some sort of a moment and they really responded to the gospel. Life is going just great they get home from the retreat, and there they go, disobeying mom and dad. And there they go with that other thing of sin. And they're so confused, like, what? I gave my life to Christ. What's going on? Like, why am I struggling with these things? You see, if we don't understand there's a war, then we're going to be really confused when our spirit is craving and desiring the new life in Christ. He's given us that but we've not understood that our flesh is still waging war against us. The truth is, he's not finished with me yet. All right, so I understand that, but your point is, my sin is a deep, dark pit of rebellion? I mean, that's a little much, right? You think that you could use some just less uh, bombastic language here? This is kind of ridiculous. Uh, I know there are things that I shouldn't do, but really a pit of rebellion? Come on. All right, let's look at verse 8, and we'll see this. It says this, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. 
I know I shouldn't want something that someone else has. Maybe it's their new car or their house seven times the size as mine or their yard is just so green. I mean, um, maybe it's the clothes that they have. I got to be content, God, I know that. But the word covet in verse 8 here is actually from the Greek word epithumeo, which means desire. So let's read that verse again here with the word desire. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of desire. And I think here is the edge of the deep, dark pit of rebellion. Because it's the law is not just calling out the sin of coveting, right? We shouldn't want things. But when you covet, why did you want what he had? Are you not happy with what God's given you? And down and down we go into the depths of our sin and we get to understand that it's not just, I shouldn't do this, but it's, why do I want that? It's not just, don't look at pornography, but it's, why are you drawn to those things? What are you trying to feed inside of yourself? It's not just, don't be angry. Well, that one we know doesn't really work too well. Uh, Just don't be angry, right? That's all. Uh, But it's, Why do you need control over this right now? Why does that person frustrate you so much? Where is this coming from? And the deep, dark pit of rebellion needs the light of Christ to begin to be exposed. We realize the law is not just simply calling out the act, but the origin of it. And I think the origin of most sin mainly comes from the very same place. It's a pit of discontentment. Well, you haven't given me enough, Lord. That's why I want what he has. God, I understand you want me to to walk this way, but have you heard the way that he treated me? That's why I'm angry. Listen to what the God who provides and cares and dumps so much into our lives says. Isaiah 41, don't be afraid, for I will be with you. James 1.5, he gives wisdom to all those who ask. Jeremiah 29, that there are plans that he has made that would prosper us and give us a hope and a future. Mark 11, ask and we will receive. Seek and you will find. Philippians 4, he will meet all of our needs according to his glorious riches. This doesn't sound like a God that is restricting his giving. This sounds like a God who's actually rather lavish with what he gives us. And yet, discontentment. Okay, well, you know, in Isaiah 41, it says, don't be afraid, he's going to be with me. But, you know, what do I really need to fear? I mean, I answered the phone call finally, and I said yes to that home security system, so we're good now, okay? And I have money and the things around me. If I get into trouble, I can figure out what happens. And I, I know the Bible's full of wisdom, but this education right now is just eating my lunch. It's what I got to give my life to because then I can get into a good job and then I can make a lot of money and buy a big house. And, and I, I know you got plans for me, God, but there's this, oh, it's just that she's the one. She's the one. I know you don't see that yet, God, but you, you don't even know. Have you heard her heart for the refugees? I mean, you would love her. 
You'll just love her, God. And I could ask you for what I need and, and trust that you'll provide, but Alexa's really good at that too, and so is Siri. And why, why would I run to you? I think the same line of thinking was also there, actually right here in the garden. Genesis chapter 2, the, God put them, Adam and Eve, down into the garden, and here's what was said. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And sin, rather Satan, slithered up and seized the opportunity. Did God really say that? Did he? You, you won't surely die. I mean... Wouldn't you rather just take matters into your own hands? I mean, look at that tree. Let your desire really dictate and call the shots, not him. You can decide. And so they did. And the crunch of the apple is what we call out, but we know eating the fruit was breaking God's law, but it was just the very tip of the iceberg because their sin actually began a few steps lower. Discontentment. Pride. They wanted to see what God saw. You see, my sin is a deep, dark pit of rebellion, and I need the light of Christ to see the bottom. Is it my will, or, or is it going to be God's will? Is it my timing right now, this is what I want, God, or is it your timing? Is it my idea of what's right and wrong, maybe the line of how far I can go, or is it your idea, God? And so I think this is something for our church to really get excited about. And yes, I did just say get excited about your sin because I think if we just say, oh, it's so bad, we'll stop really quickly at, well, I shouldn't be angry anymore or I, I shouldn't lie anymore. But we won't really go much further than that. And so we should be people that really begin to study and ask lots of questions as to where those things really come from in the deep, dark pit of rebellion called our hearts. Don't run after the actions. Ask where it came from. And maybe this is part of that community project. God's word is meant to do surgery on our hearts. In Psalm 119, it says, His word is a lamp to my feet. And in the message that actually His word throws a beam of light onto my dark path. Psalm 139 is the prayer of David. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive ways in me and then lead me in a way that's everlasting. I no longer want to stay on the surface fighting actions. The law exposes our sin and shows us our daily need of grace. It points it out. My sin is a deep, dark pit of rebellion and I need the light of Christ in order to see the bottom. And the third one, my inability to keep the law, my inability to keep the law and my need of grace is not a hindrance, but a tool in evangelism. Look at Romans chapter 7, verses 10 through 11. 
I found that the very commandment that I was intended that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, put me to death. All right, well, Romans 7 is probably not the first place you go for an evangelistic passage. Matthew 28, great passage. 19 and 20, uh, there it is, go and preach and all these things. But Romans 7, what are you talking about here? Well, let's explain what evangelism is. Uh, David Platt puts it this way. Evangelism is the proclamation of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit with the aim of persuading people to repent and believe in Christ. It's telling them the story over and over again about God's rescue plan that is alive and well and can be in their life. Jesus coming down to earth as a man, paying for our sin through the death on a cross, and now, for those that believe, forgiveness, grace and mercy, eternal life, God's spirit living inside of us. These are the things. And I believe actually a perfectly clear and effective way to point people to Jesus is for us to go first. Listen to Romans chapter 7. Paul's writing here. And he says, hey, you know what? Here's what I found. These rules and commands, they actually, I tried to go after them and obey all these things, but they actually brought me death, not life. And so you and I, we have to, we must share our story of brokenness and failure to meet God's righteous standard that we're honest when we sin against someone, and that we pursue forgiveness. I mean, that's our story, right? We didn't measure up, and that's how we came to God. Why would I pretend now that I don't make any mistakes as a Christian? That is untruth. Failure should actually drive us to the cross. More grace, more grace, more grace daily. Okay, Mike, I, I get it, but this can actually work out. Like if I actually told my story, if I actually brought people into how messed up and broken I was in the midst of God's grace, people would never, if people knew how I was before, they wouldn't trust me. Or, or my uh, reputation, it's not so great right now at work. And how would anyone listen to me? Well, I want to first look at Paul's story because that, I think, is the, the center part of why we're in Romans 7 for this. Because, you know, Paul, right, the author of Romans and many other books, kind of a big deal. But he used to be called Saul, also kind of a big deal in the murdering Christians category world. That's the big deal he was. And now Paul, who used to be Saul, is tasked with writing theologically rich instructions to the people that he was murdering. Imagine sealing that envelope, right? Lick the whatever that stuff is and seal it up, send it off. Dude, they're never going to listen to me. No shot. They're going to unsubscribe. They're going to know who I am. They're going to... But look at what Paul says, right? In 1 Corinthians 15, 9. He's not shy about this. It's what he speaks for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not in vain. Ephesians 3.8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles 
the unsearchable riches of Christ. 1 Timothy 1.16, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the worst. That's Paul writing there. Imagine what it would be like if Paul was sending that. And now fast forward 2,000 years later and here we are sitting on a Sunday morning and we are digesting week after week after week. The one who murdered the Christians is giving us a text for which we study and know God more. Crazy, right? My inability to keep the law in need of grace is not a hindrance, but a tool in evangelism. I met a guy um, on the flight home from a National Youth Workers Convention, and his name was Rick, and uh, Joanna and I were sitting together, and it was Southwest, so you kind of have to like fight for your seats, and where did we end up? The very last row. Great time on a flight in the last row. I actually don't mind it, but we're sitting there, and he's got his headphones on, he's doing his thing, and so we were kind of like, we're exhausted, you know, we'll just go through this flight. Well, we hit the, the tarmac and we land in Philly and he's like, hey, so how'd you guys enjoy the conference? Did you like it? We're like, dude, this whole time you were there and we could have talked, we were brothers in Christ. Why didn't we talk about it? And he was like, no worries. We're gonna get lunch next week and what's your number? And I was like, I, I don't even know who you are, but here's my number, okay? So I had lunch with him this past week. He grew up as a Catholic in Atlantic City and shortly into his Uh, sophomore year of high school, he converted to Islam. And junior year started with him diving into everything the world could offer. By junior and a half year, he was a bit confused which way was up or down. He had no idea what was happening. Things spiraled completely out of control. And so one day his junior year, he was at school and he was talking with this girl and uh, she kind of was the one that argued and they happened to get into this argument in chemistry class over... I don't know what you argue in chemistry. It's just science, right? Like, it is what it is or it doesn't balance, you know? So they were arguing and it was frustrating for him and he kind of walked off frustrated and they bumped into each other later in the hallway and he tells this story and he says, this girl had the nerve to come up to me and say, do you want to come to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes after school? And he was like, no way, not a chance. She's like, okay. He goes home and uh, she has this like heart transformation overnight what am I doing? You know, I got to go back and apologize to him. And so he comes into school the next morning and there she is. And she's like, yo, listen, Rick, I'm really sorry. The way I treated you yesterday was just stupid. It was just numbers or science or whatever. Like it wasn't a big deal. I'm I'm sorry. I shouldn't have treated you that way. Do you want to come to youth group on Friday night? He was like, no. I mean, thanks for the apology, but no, I'm not coming to your club. Okay. And then she goes, she's a pastor's kid. She goes, how about if there's free wings and pizza? And he's like, okay, I'll come. So he came to youth group <laughs> and always gets them. Pizza will always work. Uh, and so he came to youth group and two nights in, as he heard the gospel presented, his heart was completely shattered and he needed the grace of God and, and all the things that he had pursued were not giving life, but there was an answer to that. And so he gave his life to Christ and he's now working with the Philadelphia Project. He's also a Christian hip hop artist who's awesome, and he's doing amazing work for the kingdom. But, but I had to think, this girl, she wasn't perfect. In fact, she messed up big time. If you're going to go out and talk to people about Christ, uh, you shouldn't fight with them and then be like, 
want to come to church? You know, that's not typically the formula that we would think would work. But as he talked to me, he said, you know what? Her failure to be loving to me wasn't a roadblock. It actually was something that really encouraged me when she came back and had this heart transformation and, and apologized to me. I wasn't coming until pizza and wings, but that was a good, that was a good try. That helped. Her inability to keep the law and her need of grace was not a hindrance, but a tool in evangelism. I wonder this. Who doesn't know Jesus yet because you think your reputation is too far gone? Who hasn't heard about the life-saving truth because you think they wouldn't listen to someone like you? Just look at Paul's example murderer to all-time greatest preacher ever. His reputation wasn't pretty, and maybe that's just it. Maybe that's what God is actually looking for. Not the most put-together, ordered, moralistic, pious, perfect people. But what if his instruments of choice were the ones a little bit out of tune? What if the mugs that he was after were the ones that kind of were broken and maybe leaked What if the people that he wanted were those that limped as they walked? I think it's exactly what Henry Nouwen wrote about in his book, The Wounded Healer. He says this, Our service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which we speak. Thus, nothing can be written about ministry without a deeper understanding of the ways in which ministers can make their own wounds available as a source of healing. So what's it saying here? Maybe you think this is just the pastors or people that are in charge of professional ministry, but for you, a minister of the gospel at Wawa, or you, a minister of the gospel at work, or in your family, or when somebody wrongs you, or at your schools, because I can't be all those places, and we, the last time I checked, were all part of the church You see, we need to lead with our brokenness and bring people in knowing that they have a place too. The law exposes our sin and shows us our daily need of grace. My sin is a deep, dark pit of rebellion and I need the light of Christ in order to see the bottom. My inability to keep the law and my need of grace is not a hindrance, but a tool in evangelism. So this morning, to the person that is running, You know a lot about Jesus and God and all these things, but you're just running. Here's your invitation to a God who is rich in mercy and grace. Don't keep walking down and pursuing lifeless pursuits. Come back to him. Don't harden your heart. Surrender. To the Christian who is in a Christian community and allowing the Spirit to do its work inside of you, Allow it to take you on a deep journey of your own sin, and it might get messy. Chances are it's going to be messy. Places you've never gone before, questions you've never allowed yourself to be asked before. But I assure you, and so does he, that his grace will also be a deep journey. And to the outsider, the one on the outside looking in, not really sure what to make of Jesus yet, I have some unpopular news for you. You will never measure up. 
You can never fix it. There is only one way home, and it's through the grace and mercy of the living God, freely available to you. Would you trust him? The depth of my sin is pretty great, but the depth of God's grace is far greater. Let's pray together this morning. Oh, Father, we thank you that in the, in the midst of the light, as, as our sin is exposed and, and called out and, and even pulled out, God, of places we didn't even know, we know that your grace meets us right there. I thank you, God, that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and that your wrath that we deserved was poured out on Christ and so it is finished. It is finished. So Lord, that we would come together as your church and celebrate our daily need of grace with a high five that says, yes, me too, I am broken. With a community that asks questions beyond, did you get angry this week? And God, that we would make room for people as we share our stories of brokenness and failure, as we see from Paul's life too. God, we thank you for this truth this morning. Pray that you would continue to awaken us to your spirit. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning. You are dismissed.